looks like, guys. It's such a powerful song. It almost seems ironic that in the time when we can't sing, we've got this song that just needs to be declared from the rooftops. But here we are. Well, good morning. Um, hope you're all doing well at home. It's great to, well, not see everyone, but I, hopefully you're, you're out there. Well, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see each other again, which is going to be absolutely fantastic. Actually, this morning, driving down from the mountains, it was certainly the first time in a couple of months I've left the mountains. It just felt like gone on a bit of a holiday to Windsor, which was strange. But anyway, we are in some particularly strange times. But hopefully, in a few weeks, we will be together once more. So I think it's probably appropriate that we're talking about the church uh, and our, our role that we play within that. You know, it's just as you were talking, Daniel, um, before you, as you're singing, singing that song, you're talking about this new season that we're coming into, and it just, just really occurred to me, it really hit me, that we're coming into a season where I go as far as to say we probably need each other more than any other time we've needed each other. Maybe there's been other times, certainly not within my living memory, but I think the time we're about to come into as a church for a season, we're going to need each other more than we have in a very, very long time. You know, we're coming out of this lockdown and coming out of isolation. And, you know, if we can debate the merits of lockdowns, and that will be a debate that will go on, I think, for a long time. But one thing's for certain, that this isolation that we've all experienced, it's taken its toll in, in different ways with different people. And there's going to be some healing that's going to need to come from that. And so I think as an encouragement, as a prophecy, as a, a request, whatever, for us as a church, that we just be aware of that, that as we're coming back together, to be more sensitive to the needs of each other and to recognise that we're coming out of a place with some hurt and with some, with some damage that's been done and we're going to need to be there for each other. So anyway, for whatever that's worth, I guess I wanted to speak to that topic a little bit in my message this morning and what our role is, what part do we play in this church, in this community, in, in what we're doing here uh, as a body. As I've titled my message, doing your bit and playing your part, which kind of feels like a bit of redundancy. It feels like I'm saying the same thing twice, but what is our role to play? What are we doing here? How do we all contribute to this community that we call the church? Because we're all part of it, but What's expected of us here? What, what bit do we do? Um, I want to look at Ephesians this morning, but to do that, I want to sort of set the context for what the world of the Ephesians would have been like. Uh, I guess it probably goes without saying that the world of the first century is a little bit different to the world of the 21st century. Uh, in fact, if you put the two worlds side by side, there's not a whole lot that was really comparable uh, on pretty much every front. And one of the core differences you'll find between our world today and the world of the first century is in this idea of community. We have in the modern world, certainly in the West, this stronger, this stronger sense of the individual, this greater awareness of the individual person. And we very much, in, in so many ways, we think about in terms of the individual, in terms of the self. Uh, you, you see this in our language. You know, how many times do you see words that have the self as a prefix? 
So you're self-made or self-motivated or self-aware or self-whatever, you name it. It's always about the self. It's about the me, what I do, who I am. Uh, you might be watching this on YouTube, a channel dedicated to you where you can style it however you want. It's not about everyone else, it's about you. And so that's not a bad thing. It's one of the great products of the Enlightenment, one of the great products of the West is this awareness that we are all individuals, that we can't just see ourselves as a commodity. It's we are unique and that those, that unique element to each of us needs to be appreciated, it needs to be fostered. But when you only focus on the individual, you, it's easy to lose sense or, or lose um, awareness of the community. That even though we're all individuals, we're also made for a group. We're made for community, we're made for others. Uh, you see this in the garden. God makes a man and he says, that's good, but it's, there's something wrong. He's alone. He needs companion, he needs community. And so God made community for the man. And that was one of the first acknowledgements we find within the human race, that we need each other, that we need to be part of a community. So one of the key differences we have between our world and the first century is that in the ancient world, in the first century, you don't really understand yourself apart from community. There's not really any, almost any sense of the individual. So the question about yourself was never, who are you? The question was always, whose are you? Who do you belong to? Who do you associate with? Who do you do community with? Because that's gonna tell you everything you need to know about a person. Think about the times when they'd see Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. And everyone just got fired up, everyone got so offended, why? because the assumption was Jesus himself must be a tax collector and a sinner, because otherwise you wouldn't be eating with those people. And particularly who you ate with said everything about you. That was your community, therefore that was your identity. And so you always understood yourself within the context of your group. Your primary group, of course, being the family. And so family was absolutely essential. You, you never leave your family. And if you do, you're isolated, you're on your own. Outside of your family, it would be whatever group or association you'd be part of, whether that be a trade association, and that was a very common thing you would find. So in Acts 19 in Ephesus, uh, you see these metal workers who are firing up and trying to have Paul killed. Who were the metal workers? Well, they were the local association of metal workers, and that was their group, that was their community. You'd identify yourself with your city whatever village or group or city you're a part of, that would be part of your identity. And so again, we see this around Jesus. So, you know, you talk about Jesus being the son of Joseph. Well, that was his family group. Jesus the carpenter, that was his trade. That was the, the work group that he would be associated with. Jesus of Nazareth, that was his village, his community. So you're always identified according to the group that you belong to. And so what that means then is that your priority, the most important thing, responsibility you have is to your group. You want the best for your group because if your group is flourishing, you're flourishing. You're doing well as well. If your group is honored, then you're honored for being part of the group. 
Conversely, if your group is falling apart or if your group is shamed, you bear the brunt of that as well. And so this is what the philosophers used to always talk about. Aristotle, Plato, Seneca, Cicero, all these great thinkers of the day. They're always asking the question, what's the ideal for a person? Why are we here? What's the greatest good for being a human? What's our purpose? What's our telos? What's our goal? And they realized that it was happiness. The goal for humans was happiness. Not in the sense of emotionally, you're just really joyous and everyone likes to be around you. No, that no matter what the circumstances are, you're not distraught by them. It's, you're not pushed down by them. What they realized was that to be happy, to, to achieve happiness, to achieve the fulfilled life, you needed to live in accordance with virtue, you need to be a virtuous person because that's what makes humans unique. We needed to be virtuous. That's what sets us apart from the animals and from all other created things, that we have this possession of virtue. So the goal then was to attain virtue. It was to be the ideal person, to be everything that we're made to be. But then they realized that you can't do that by yourself. You can't be virtuous apart from a community because to be virtuous means you need to give out from yourself. You need to practice virtue. It's not something you can do isolated. You might have the potential of virtue within you, but you haven't exercised it. The only way you exercise virtue is in a community. And so if that's the goal, if that's what it takes to create the ideal person, then we need, on top of that, to create a society that will foster that. We need to create the ultimate or ideal community that will bring about the virtue of its citizens. And so the goal for the philosophers was to understand what it means to be virtuous, but then having established that is the means to the end of creating the ideal society. Because it's only in that ideal society that we can become ideal people. So you need the community to become everything you're made to be. You can't do it apart from the community. Now that's the world that Paul walked in. And so when Paul establishes Christianity, he's seeking to get people saved, individuals coming to meet Jesus Christ, becoming followers of Christ. But that's not the ends. The end for Paul is the community. It's one thing to be saved, it's an entirely different thing to be part of a Christian community because it's only in the Christian community that you can be truly saved. If you went back to Paul, if you could somehow go back in time and say to Paul something like, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Or I'm a Christian, but I don't really have a Christian community. He'd look at you and he'd see like, I see your lips moving but I don't understand the words coming out of your mouth. They make no sense to me. Because for Paul, he could not imagine Christianity apart from the Christian community. Because it's only in the community that we can truly exercise our Christianity. It doesn't exist apart from that. Yes, we might have faith. Yes, we might have a relationship with Christ, but we cannot truly exercise that relationship apart from relationship. 
Christ didn't want to just establish individual Christians. He wanted to establish a body. And so whenever you see these philosophers talking about this ideal, trying to describe what they can see for their cities, they always use this terminology of the body. The body made up of lots of individual parts with their individual functions, but cannot function apart from the rest of the body. They make no sense apart from the rest of the body. It's only in a body and a healthy body that those parts can flourish. And so this is why Paul just uses this same metaphor, because that's how everyone understood how a community works. So the three times he uses it, one time is in Corinthians 12, another time in Romans 12, and then this time here in Ephesians 4. And we'll look at the Ephesians 4, but I, if you get the opportunity, read this passage in line with Romans 12 and Corinthians 12, because there's a real parallel that runs between the three of them. We don't have the time, of course, this morning. I'll just focus on Ephesians. But I want to look at this, these first few verses of chapter 4. Um, to, get, to understand them, I guess, we need a quick background of Ephesus. Um, so Ephesus is the capital of the region of Asia Minor, in the ancient world, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Western Turkey. You can still go and visit the old ruins of Ephesus today. It's really cool. The thing about Asia Minor was that, as a region, it was noted for its practice of magic. This is why when you get to Acts 19, what you find there is that there's this proliferation of the supernatural, far more than what you saw in Corinth previously when Paul was there. You know, you've got uh, people burning their magic scrolls, you've got exorcists getting beaten up by these demon-possessed people. You get this, all this crazy supernatural stuff happening, but that's par for the course of living in a place like Ephesus. Their focus is on so much more on, the, on magic and on the supernatural, far more than what you might find anywhere else. Now, the reality of the ancient world was that as a general summary of your, your spiritual understanding, everyone in the ancient world was what we would call animistic. Now, animists are, or the animism is this belief that the spiritual realm is constantly at work in our lives. Uh, more specifically, this is sort of awareness of ancestral spirits or sort of de demons and spirits that are lurking behind everything and every everything we experience. When you look at a lot of indigenous cultures still today, there's still this sense of animism. There's this, still this sense of the ancestral spirits are powerful and they're constantly in our lives. And, and so our, our goal in life or our purpose in life is to keep them appeased. Because if we anger them, then they're going to come and they're going to do terrible things to us. Uh, one of my colleagues at college, Kevin Hovey, he spent 10 years working in Papua New Guinea. And so he was doing missionary work over there with his wife. And he said... To preach Jesus to someone in Papua New Guinea is very, very easy. To convince somebody that Jesus is God or that he's powerful, that's really easy. And everyone will believe that. The challenge is to convince them that Jesus is the most powerful. More than that, to convince them that Jesus is the only powerful one. That's where it becomes nearly impossible. Because the sticking point for a person in a culture like that is that if I follow your Jesus, I'm going to offend the ancestral gods. 
And if I do that and you're wrong, this Jesus isn't powerful, those gods, those spirits are going to make my life a living hell. And so to go over to this Jesus, to believe in him is easy, but to be totally loyal to him, that's a whole different thing. Because that comes with it an incredible cost. And if you're wrong, my life is over. So this is the challenge Paul had when he was preaching to the Ephesians. It was the same cost that came with leaving behind their spirits to follow this one and only Jesus Christ. And so what Paul has to do in this letter is spend the first three chapters of the letter describing to them where we are in Christ, that we're seated with Christ, we're seated in this realm which is more powerful than anything else that this universe knows. That where Jesus is, is far above all powers and principalities, we are seated with him in that place. We share in that power. That there is nothing that even comes close to the power of Christ. And so he spends three whole chapters explaining to these Ephesians, this is where you are. And so whatever else you might be afraid of, it's nothing. It's got nothing on Jesus. And so now that you know where you are, the question is, what do you do with that? What does that look like in your everyday life? And so the whole second half of the letter, beginning in 4.1, is this practical outworking of what does that mean for us now? Yes, we're spiritually seated with Christ in the heavenlies, but we're still here on earth. We still live in this earthly realm. What does that mean for us in our everyday life? And he says, well, what it looks like is a community. It's a community made up of individuals, but its priority is that it's a community. So he says to them here, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you all. It's always in the plural. He doesn't talk to individuals. He talks to you all. Except English, we don't really have the proper translation. Y'all, maybe, but that's not really an Australian thing. He says, I urge you all to live a life worthy of the calling you all have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I just want to stop on that word for a moment, this word syndesmos. Um, it's where we get our word syndesmosis from. Now, if you're an NRL fan like I am, that's a word you've been hearing a lot over the last few years. Syndesmosis, what is that? It's just a, some syndesmosis injury? What are you talking about? Well, the syndesmosis, it's the ligaments that connect the, the tibia and the fibula. Uh, they connect those bones together with your ankle bones. And so it's this incredibly strong ligament, which is still a little bit flexible. That's why you can still sort of move your feet around, your ankle around, but it, it holds it all together. It's an incredibly strong sort of binding ligament. So basically it's unbreakable, uh, unless you're an NRL player, and then it seems to be made of Play-Doh for some reason. But for the most part, it's meant to just hold everything together in a way that you just can't pull it apart. And he says that's the goal for our community to be bound together with a love and a peace that is unbreakable. There's some flexibility in it, sure, but you can't pull it apart. So he says that's the goal. He says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Are you getting the point? There's just one. One God, one community, one spirit, one body. That's us. And so our calling, then, is to be part of that. But not just to be part of that, but to contribute to it. So for all of us, we share the one same calling, to build this community to which, we've built, to which we belong. Now for the Ephesians, they get that. They understand that because that's the sort of world they, they live in. They understand that they are individuals, but individuals as a part of a group, and their responsibility is to the group. They get that. And they understand the goal of community. The goal of all community in the ancient world, everything from the city level right down to the family, was harmony, to live in harmony. Now, it's a bit of a Greek thing here this morning, but we get our word harmony from the Greek word homonoia. Homonoia just means homos, same, noia, mind, having the same mind. Not that we all think exactly the same, but we all share the same outlook. We all have the same common shared values. We think like each other in the sense that we all see the same purpose and same vision for what we're part of. In a Roman marriage, the goal of marriage was never love. That's just there's some new idea that you love each other. What's, you get married to have kids, to make kids. That's the purpose of it. And the goal for the husband and wife is concordia, harmony. The goal is that you align yourselves with each other, that you have the same shared purpose and same shared values. Now, if you happen to love each other, sure. I mean, that's just a natural thing that happens as humans, but that's not the goal. You don't, oh, we fell in love and we knew that we were going to be for each other and have the rest of our lives together, so we got married and every day I love you more. It's just, that's just rubbish. It just doesn't, that's not what the ancients thought. The goal is harmony. And so at every level in communities, the goal is that you all live in harmony with one another. That's your calling. That's the purpose is to build towards that. And so there's one goal and there's one God and there's one community. But this, then he says this, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So this is the flexibility within the syndesmos. He says, so Christ gave himself, himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. This is a really interesting list of gifts. Now, in Corinthians 12, in Romans 12, you get lists of gifts. And so you put it all together and you get this really comprehensive picture of what we all are, what our skill sets are. And so in Corinthians, you get the spiritual gifts, this charismata, this gifts that come as an immediate result of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And so you, you have to have the Holy Spirit to exercise those gifts. Uh, in Romans 12, you've got some more practical gifts and certainly more service gifts. The, your ability to actually just contribute to the betterment of the community. But these five gifts are a little bit different because they're not really gifts. They're more characteristics. They're more natural abilities. 
So you don't get these gifts because you're a Christian. You get these gifts because you're born a human being. So what do you mean? These seem like Christian sort of gifts. Well, let's look at it this way. He says, first of all, there's an, there's an apostle. Well, an apostle, we understand, is someone like Paul who goes into a city and establishes a church where there hasn't been a church before. He goes in and builds something brand new, takes the risk, steps out, establishes a community. Well, if you put that into everyday terms, that's an entrepreneur. That's somebody who goes into a place where a business doesn't exist or some idea doesn't exist, and they establish it. And they have this vision for it. They just have this knack. They can just sense where the opportunities are. They see things that other people don't. And then they have the, 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 the ability, they have the guts to actually step out and do it. It's a funny thing that happens when you see and hear people criticize pastors of these megachurches. Pastors who've gone out and established these churches which are internationally renowned. Everybody knows these churches. And they get criticized, these pastors will get criticized, sometimes fairly, but often unfairly, usually by people who are just jealous of their success. But they'll criticize them. And one of the common criticisms is, oh, well, you know, they shouldn't be so rich. They shouldn't have so much money. And these pastors who are wealthier through the success of this church that they've established or whatever it is they've done, and they'll say, oh, that shouldn't happen. You shouldn't be rich. Here's the thing to remember. Those pastors that you're thinking of, if they didn't apply their skill set to plant in a church, you would still know about them as extremely wealthy people only in the business world. Because whatever they were going to do was going to be successful because they just have that knack. So you're born with this apostolic ability or this entrepreneurial ability. Some of you are. It's only then a question of do you use it for the good of the kingdom or do you use it for the good of yourself? Then he talks about the prophets. Well, the prophets, as we understand, the, the basic gift set is this, this sensitivity to what's going on in the spiritual realm, what's going on behind the scenes. This ability just to get into touch with that spiritual realm. And so we see that exercised in the church all the time. But you also see it exercised in the world every time, well, hopefully you don't read horoscopes, but it's the same thing. What about your evangelists? Well, this is a fun one. People that are out there, they've just got to preach the gospel. They've just got to get people saved. They've just got to tell people this, this and just convince people of this message. We'll take them out of the church scene and they'll be selling vacuum cleaners on your doorstep, no question. The pastors, the compassionate, caring, loving, sympathetic, empathetic ones. Well, there are plenty of great counselors out there who aren't Christian, but they've got that ability teachers as well. There are a lot of great teachers out there who are actually trying to teach that God doesn't exist. Ironically, with a skill set that God gave them. So Paul says, God has given us these skill sets. Now, it might be a combination thereof, but every single one of you that's watching this, you have something of one of these, or maybe two or even three. Now, you may not be aware of them. It might even be worth asking somebody, do, do any of those sound like what I just naturally do? 
but he says he gave you these things for the good of others. He made you a certain way to be able to serve other people. You were born to do this. You were created to do this and then gifted accordingly. He says the purpose of this is to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Teleos. Um, Solly, if you're watching, you were messaging me the other day about this word. This is another example of it. So that's just so you know. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness, literally the full stature of Christ. So God created you with a certain skill set for the purposes of building other people so that we all as a body grow together to have the stature of Christ. So that as a body, as a community, we hold together with strength and become increasingly strong so that we can become full representatives of the body of Christ. But these gifts, these abilities that go beyond just serving individuals. There comes a point in all of us that as we individually mature, you might be the apostle that goes and plants a church, but there comes a point where you're the apostle that trains the other apostles. You become the mentor to the younger apostles or the prophets or whatever the skill set might be. It doesn't just stop at the individual, but you actually start to raise up the new ones coming through, the younger ones coming through, so that they can then continue to do the work. So it's not just an individual responsibility to each other, but it's a responsibility to the whole group, maybe through a handful of people to be able to reach more people. So the work isn't even just on you yourself to do all the work yourself. It's to train up others so that they can do the work. so that the body will be built up, it will grow to become the fullness of Christ. Now the goal of this, the outcome of all of this, he says, is this. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. This is a really cool picture that Paul paints for his people. The picture is, if you imagine you're out in the surf, and you know, I'm, I'm six foot tall, I'm relatively built, I you know, weigh 80 kilos, I've, there's, there's a bit of stature about me. I'm nothing special, I'm no bodybuilder, but there's, there's a certain solidness to me. And so when I go out in the surf, I can go quite a, quite a way out into the surf, and I'm not knocked around. I might be sort of moved a little bit, but it's gonna take a pretty big wave to knock me over. But if I'm out there with my four-year-old, it's a very different story. He doesn't have the stature to withstand the waves that I can. And so I need to protect him, I need to look after him, I need to take care of him when he's out there. I need to keep him in the shallows at the smaller waves that aren't gonna knock him over. Now that's not gonna be the story of his whole life because he's gonna grow up. He's gonna have that stature where he can go further out into the surf. So Paul says, that's what he put us here for. That's what we're here for, to build each other up so that as a community, not as individuals, but as a community, we can withstand that pressure. We can withstand the attacks that will come. When you attack one part of the body, you attack the whole body. 
you hurt the toe, you're going to hurt the whole body. You break a finger, everything else struggles along with it. So we all share that. God's purpose for us is that we'd be strong enough that when we are attacked, when the body is damaged, it doesn't take the whole thing down. Why? Because we're bound together with these ligaments that are so strong that nothing can pull it apart. And so he finishes with this. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. A more literal translation of that last part is according to the working by measure of each single part. So every single one of us has a role to play. Every single one of us has a set of gifts, a set of abilities for the purposes of other people, for the purposes of the community. Our job is to simply exercise them. I can't do it all. You can't do it all. We can only do it together when all of us play our part, when all of us literally just do our little bit. So I'll return to what I said at the start as we just finish this up. We're coming into a season where we're going to need each other, maybe more than we have in a very long time. And I'm not the solution to everyone's problems and you're not the solution to everyone's problems, but we all together as a group, as a community, we are coming into a season where we're all going to need to do our bit. Some of us are stronger than others, and some of us can maybe carry a bit more. But we're coming into a time where we're going to have to come to maybe even a new sense of understanding of what it means to be community in this new world. And that's going to take all of us working together, a greater empathy, a greater intentional wanting to understand, wanting to see what's going on in each other. I don't know what that looks like, but fortunately we have the one God and one spirit who binds us together, who can lead us into that journey, into that new season. So maybe that's my encouragement. That's our message for this morning as we, we look to the next few weeks and the next few years really as well. Why don't we pray? Father, we are, we're, we're looking towards this new season and, and aware that it will be different. We are coming into some new times and to, in some ways, even relearning how to do community. As a father, whatever we were doing before, maybe there's parts of that that just don't apply anymore. Maybe it does, we don't know. We just don't know, and that's the point. And so we look back to you and say, Father, lead us into this new time. Lead us into what this new community is going to look like. What is church going to look like? What are our services going to look like? Well, we don't know. We know we need to be part of them. We know we need to be part of this community, maybe more than ever. For those of us who are isolated, Father, I pray that you would just bring people around them. They would feel the ability to reconnect in with this Christian community and there to find their strength, there to find who they are within this this broader community. We really need your wisdom, God. We really need your guidance and your leadership 
right now by your spirit. And so we thank you, we turn to you, we lean on you, and we just trust you as we look forward and say, Father, have your way. Your kingdom come, your will be done through us. In your incredible name, amen. Amen, well, thanks so much for watching. Um, I cannot wait to see you guys again in a few weeks and uh, it's gonna be a great time when we're all back together. So till then, have a great Sunday. See you guys.